Well, good morning. This is a hell of a session right after breakfast, but uh, fortunately we didn't have sausage and bacon, so that's, that's good. So I, apparently I'm the, uh, the comic relief, correct, Diana? Yes, yes, that was the plan. <laughs> so uh, today I'm going to talk about two Montana, well, I take that back. We're going to talk about one Montana cannibal and one by a cannibal by reputation. And... Uh, so, and kind of like, how do you, how do you survive in, in the American West by making people think you eat human flesh? Well, you, actually you don't. So, uh, we'll kind of go on from that. Uh, the history of the American West is, is really brings out the best and the worst traits in, in people, as we all know. Uh, tales of heroism abound, but so do tales of depravity as well. And it's the tales of depravity that we're all mostly interested in. Isn't it? Being, being bad is much better than being good in, as far as history goes, because the, uh, the narratives are a lot more interesting. Uh, cannibalism, of course, is a theme in the where in, on the in the uh, excuse me in the frontier that we all know about. Um, I don't know if this man's a cannibal or not, but uh, but I kind of like the picture. Anyway, so but uh, but it's like Diana's mentioned the, the really the granddaddy of all the uh, the cannibal stories in the American West is the Donner Party and this story is uh, is more I think a, a tale of how people interacted on the long Oregon trek or the California trek when they didn't really get along very well together from the first place so that might have made it up easier that when they became trapped in the snow in the, in the Sierra Mountains that it might have made it easier to, to eat their neighbors. But, uh, but of course this is, this is the one that really started it all. Um, but this gentleman also has kind of an interesting history um, and as well. In February 1874 this, this was Alfred Packer. How many of you heard of Mr. Packer before? Mr. Packer was uh, guiding a group of, I believe, seven men across the Rocky Mountains in the wintertime, and only Mr. Packer came out of the mountains later on. Well, it turns out he had killed and eaten the people he was guiding, and in the process made a serious dent in the number of Democrats in that particular county. <laughs> Most of the time, the cannibal stories are about survival, uh, along with Emmeline Fuller and, and others. But, you know, sometimes it's just about people, just odious characters who live on the fringes of, of society. And that's who I'm going to talk about today. Unfortunately, both of them were in Montana, but, uh, but it could have been, they could have been anywhere. Um, I'm going to talk about Liberating Johnson first. And I'm sure all of you have heard the story that Mr. Johnson's Salish wife was killed by, by Crow Indians and then he went on the rampage and murdered up to 300 Crow warriors and ate their livers. Um, how many of you think that's a true story? Hope no, hopefully nobody will raise their hands because it all comes out of really one book that's called Crow Killer by uh, Raymond Thorpe and another man by the last name of Bunker, who really set 
the, uh, really established the story of Livereed and Johnson, and it's all wrong. I mean, it's completely fabricated. A lot of it was picked up by Bartis Fisher in, in his book, uh, Mountain Man, and then eventually that story made its way into the Jeremiah Johnson movie with Robert Redford, who does not look like a cannibal. I think most of you would agree. Um, well, it didn't happen that way. Um, John Johnston didn't really like Indians very well, um, but it, he didn't really single out the Crow tribe for any kind of revenge. There's no, no evidence that he ever had a Salish wife and that she was killed by Crow warriors and, and that set off the, uh, the rampage. But he is kind of a, an ugly individual nonetheless. His name was originally John Jeremiah Garrison. He was born in New Jersey about 1824. He served in the U.S. Navy during the Mexican-American War. There are several reasons given for why he jumped ship during the conflict, but he, uh, he debarked at New Orleans, changed his name to John Johnston, and headed west. Um, supposedly, he served as, uh, in, the, in the Civil War. He was involved in the battles around Newtonia, Missouri, in 1864, but was discharged for scalping both Union and Confederate soldiers. Maybe, maybe not. There's never really, there's no real proof that he ever served in the military. But in any case, in 1869, he shows up in Montana. Uh, he was a wood hawk. He was cutting wood along with 14 other men at uh, Kerchival City. How many of you heard of Kerchival City? Nobody. Well, it was, uh, it was a little trading post at the mouth of the Musselshell River, and it was really nothing more than a cabin encircled by a stockade. That was the city. But during the time the, 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 the city was active was when the, the, probably the Lakota were causing most of the problems for the men who were, who were living there. So the story goes that in 1869, Spring of 1869, the men at Kerchival City were attacked by Lakota warriors. There was a battle, killed many Indians, didn't apparently kill anybody, the, the Euro-Americans, but just Indians. And after the battle, there was a lot of bodies laying around. And one of the stories goes that one man found liver, John Johnston cooking a liver over an open fire right after the battle. I guess an after the battle snack, as it were. It's a deer liver, though. It's not a human liver. And the guy says, what's that you're eating? And he says, well, I'm not going to let this go to waste with all these dead Indians laying around. So, of course, that gets people kind of going. And then X Speedler gets involved. Now, X Speedler seems to have been everywhere. But, uh, of course, X Speedler knew Johnston fairly well and writes about him in his autobiography. And that's where I first heard the story about John Johnston eating Indian livers. And according to X Beadler, who was really pretty much an unpleasant character himself, says that Johnston, where all the bodies were at, they were being quartered, they were being scalped, and Johnston cut the liver out of one of them and held it at the tip of his knife and he says, do any of you fellows take your liver rare? And then just proceeded to eat half the liver. 
So, supposedly that's where the story came from. But John Johnston told a story that was a little bit different than that, and probably this is closer to the truth, that he was sitting in, one of, in the cabin, at the, at the hut, in, in, in the stockade, and a man, this, this is his words, quote, a sort of squeamish old fellow named Ross came running up. I waved the knife with the liver on it in the air, and I cried out, come on and have a piece. I'll, it'll stay your stomach till you get home for dinner. Don't want none, says he. Come on, says I, dancing around. I've had some, and it's as good as antelope's liver. Have a bite. Then Ross threw up his guts, and he always swore after that he saw me tear a liver out of a dying engine and eat it. But that ain't so. I was all over blood, and I had the liver on my knife, but I didn't eat none of it. Good grammar, anyway. You do really well on Facebook anymore. So. Anyway, but the, the, the story spread by word of mouth. I'm going to have fun with puns a little bit later on, too. I, I can't help it. And, you know, eventually the name stuck, Liver Eaton Johnson. Despite the problem with the Indians, Johnston hung around Kirchival City through the winter of 1869-1870. It's not known why he stayed behind, but it might have been because he was injured somehow. When the water rose on the Missouri in the spring of 1870, steamboats began passing the post on their way upriver to Fort Benton. One, the Huntsville, stopped at, the, at Kirchival City, and many of its passengers debarked to investigate the apparently abandoned fort. What they found was that the place still had one inhabitant, Liver Eaton Johnson. In a scene right out of a horror movie, one female passenger later described their meeting with the budding frontier legend. And this is how it goes. She says, on the sharpened points of the stockade walls, somebody had placed the bleached skulls of the Indians who had died in the battle the previous year. So the place must have looked, you know, presented a fairly gruesome sight right from the very beginning. And this is a story I've heard from other sources, so I assume that it probably really did happen this way. But she says, or wrote later on, at the end of the line of skulls stood the old trapper himself, Liver Eaton Johnson. And a queer sight he was on that day. He was leaning on a crutch. The day was unexpectedly warm, so the amount of his clothing was in accordance. The much well, let me, I'd love to see this guy like this, wouldn't you? So barely dressed. The much shrunken and faded old red undershirt was scant and barely reached below his hips. It was absolutely all he wore. One leg was bandaged, his hair was long and uncombed, his beard was bushy and fluttered in the warm breeze. He was a huge man and with so much of his big frame exposed to view, he made a characteristic picture, a characteristic picture that those passengers would never forget. <laughs> I get this whole thing kind of, you can't unsee it after you've read about it. Afterwards, Johnson made the rounds of the trading posts and other settlements on the upper Missouri and on the Yellowstone River. He first appears under the name Liberty Johnson in the Benton Weekly Record in May of 1875. He becomes really a figure of myth as much as reality, and seems to have been everywhere at once. He was often referred to as a scout and an old Indian fighter. 
One story said he ate the liver of a horse thief. The story about him pretending to eat an Indian liver followed him everywhere, a story that, didn't, that he didn't deny and he seemed to actually have relished. Johnson never did have a good reputation. A man named Sylvester Whalen, who was an old Indian fighter himself, later said that Johnson, Johnston killed more Indians around the campfire than he did in real life. And I think he's probably a lot like Calamity Jane and Ex Beadler were as well, that um, as Montana became tamer, that a lot of these characters kind of retreated to the saloons and the bigger cities in, in Montana. Uh, they didn't really have a purpose anymore like they did before, but one thing they could do was tell a good story. And I would assume that Johnston, without really a steady income by that time, like Calamity Jane and Beadler, um, told stories for drinks. And the more drinks he got, the wilder the stories got became. But also it's in these places that the newspaper reporters and the writers of the dime novels also hang out. So they're the ones that are picking up these things in the saloons and, and kind of, you know, writing about them and, and so these people get a national reputation for essentially doing a lot of things that they never really did in the first place. I mean, this is how Calamity Jane became the wild kitten, wild plains kitten, you know, a beautiful woman of the, of the West. And, and if we know Calamity Jane, she was anything but beautiful. But that's neither here nor there. One man said that Liver Eaton Johnson was really the most dangerous when he was standing behind an unarmed foe. He said, quote, it is a liberating variety of citizen which caused the friction between the Indians and the whites, which turmoil resulted in the sacrifice of innumerable lives and the needless torture of hundreds of human beings. For a time after the death of Muggins Taylor at Colson in 1882, he served as a deputy sheriff at that place. And uh, it's, you know, he pretty well, Colson was probably the wickedest town in Montana at that time and death by violence was common, as the Boot Hill will really attest, correct, Ellen? Yeah. But he did his best to pacify the settlement with his fist rather than with rifle and knife. In the 1880s, he was a constable at Red Lodge, which was a raucous coal camp at the foot of the Rocky Mountains. There he kept the peace mostly by his reputation. The grizzled old frontiersman and misanthrope purportedly with a taste for human liver, became a favorite among Red Lodge children. By the end of the 1890s, Johnston was worn out, maybe from telling so many stories or from iron poor blood. That's a pretty good part. <laughs> he entered an old soldier's home in Santa Monica, California, and died there in January 1900. And he's buried, currently buried in uh, Cody, Wyoming, if you want to go visit him there. Well, it's easy to maybe appreciate and even like Liver Eaton Johnston, which I hope you don't. Um, Boone Helm was an entirely different animal. Have you all heard of, of Mr. Helm? If you've been to Virginia City, you've seen his grave up on the, up on the Boot Hill. To quote my old mentor, one of my old mentors, Rich Rader, Helm was, quote, a dirty, a mean, rotten son of a bitch. I knew, Paula, you'd like that. You'd heard that a lot. So even the vigilante revisionists seem to agree that Helm was probably the one person hanged by the vigilantes that really deserved that fate. 
He was completely amoral. He was a braggart. And uh, he actually enjoyed the taste of human flesh. Well, Johnston's, you know, basing his reputation on not actually having eaten any liver, that Helm was actually eating other people and bragging about it and enjoying it to the point where he did it often. So um, I don't know how much salt he used or if he flavored it some other way, but uh, I'm sorry, I'm in bad taste today. I'll have to improve myself. But. So unlike Johnston's reputation, Helm's claims were undoubtedly true. In addition to his being a gruesome foodie of sorts, he was a road agent, a murderer, a horse thief, rustler, domestic abuser, and a bar fighter. He also may be one of the first American serial killers. Uh, my daughter, I'll leave that question up to my daughter, Kira, who is a budding historian in her own right and a student of serial killers generally about whether uh, whether Boonhelm would actually meet that criteria. Who knows, it might be her master's thesis at some point. He was born in Kentucky in 1828. He was uh, around 1828. He was one of 13 children born to a Joseph and Mrs. Helm. In 1831, the family moved to Monroe County, Missouri, where Joseph was a farmer. From the beginning, though, Boone was no good and lacked the moral fiber of his father. Sometime in the 1840s, he married a 17-year-old girl named Lucinda Browning. Um, we don't know what he did for a living while he was in Missouri, other than the fact that he spent a lot of time carousing in the local bars with his friends. Lucinda, who later divorced him, said that uh, he stabled his horse in their home and that he beat her on a regular basis. In 1850, he and a boyhood friend decided to try their luck in the California gold fields. When the friend later backed out of the deal, Helen, Helm went to his cabin and buried a knife in his chest. He then fled Monroe County for Indian Territory, but was eventually brought back for, to, uh, to, to stand trial for murder. No witnesses appeared against him, and the judge was forced to uh, to dismiss the case. Helm went free, but in the process it impoverished his father and it ruined the family's reputation. The 1850 census lists him as a teamster living in Sacramento. Rumors persist though that he robbed, raped, pillaged, and murdered his way across California and Oregon for much of the 1850s. Helm was an honest-to-God outlaw and may have developed his fondness for man-meat at this time, if the rumors are true. In 1859, he did officially add cannibal to his long resume. Although counts differ, in October 1858, the basic story goes that Helm and some individuals went to the Dalles, Oregon, and they bought a racehorse. And they intended to run, take this racehorse back to Salt Lake City, where they were going to uh, make money on racing it. Well, on the way back through Oregon, or through Southern Idaho, excuse me, they were attacked by Cayuse Indians, and those that survived that attack then got caught in an early season blizzard like we're about to experience here in the next couple of days. So they were trapped by the blizzard, forced to slaughter all the horses for food, and then uh, uh, Helm and a companion named Elijah Barton 
decided they would try their luck getting back to civilization on their own. Well, they got as far as Fort Hall, found that it had been abandoned by that time. They were trapped there again for a little while. And in the process, Barton died. Now, it's not known whether he died from suicide like Helm claimed or whether Helm actually killed him. But Helm did butcher him, um, wrapped the pieces of his friend Barton in a dirty flannel shirt and set out on foot for Salt Lake City and lived pretty much on the, those provisions till he arrived in a freighter's cabin in the spring of 1859, 1860, excuse me. And uh, supposedly, the story goes again, he walked in the door of that cabin, um, said that he, what had happened to him, threw down the rest of his friend that was still wrapped in the shirt, and dogs ate him. And then he bragged about what he'd lived on since he'd left Fort Hall. Probably he really ate Barton, so it's hard to, to say for sure, but I would say based on his later career that probably happened. All right, after he was kicked out of Salt Lake City, he uh, embarked on another uh, series of villainies across northern Utah and Idaho. He uh, ended up in Florence, Idaho in 1862, got in a bar fight there, killed a man named Dutch Fred, and fled north across the Canadian border into the British Columbia. Uh, while there, he uh, teamed up with a man named Angus McPherson to do some deep woods trapping, and several months later, Boone came out of the woods and McPherson didn't. So, at the Fraser Mining District, he was partying again in a uh, saloon and refused to pay for his drinks. And when the saloon keeper confronted him about it, he says, don't you know that I'm a desperate character? But that didn't phase the saloon keeper who called the constable who came to the saloon, arrested Helm, and then eventually the questions arose, what happened to your partner McPherson? And so Helm says, now, would you take me for a damn fool? Of course, I ate him. This is a great guy. <laughs> uh, there's an XB there. You all know what X looked like, probably. Uh, um, John Johnston in his, his early, later years still looks a little bit like somebody you wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley. And then there's Boone Helm. Yeah. Anyway, that, sorry, that finger looks like it's going to pick his nose. <laughs> By 1863, Helm had reached um, the uh, Montana mining camps. Um, then it becomes a little bit dicier exactly what exactly was going on. Um, and, but in the process, he becomes a part of Montana legend. Uh, interestingly, he does not appear by name as committing any robberies or murders in either Jim Stale's Vigilantes of Montana or Langford's Vigilante Days and Ways. Uh, excuse me, Helm must have been a formidable and notorious presence in the road agent gang, the, the Innocents, much as, as Slade was as, as a member of the Vigilantes, I would guess. Um, yet he doesn't appear in both books until the mass hanging in Virginia City on January 14, 1864. 
Dinsdale mentions nothing about his reputation as a cannibal, only that, quote, if ever a desperado was all guilt and without a single redeeming feature, Boonhelm was the man. On January 14, 1863, 1864, excuse me, he was arrested in front of the Virginia Hotel on Wallace Street in Virginia City. At the time of his arrest, he proclaimed his innocence and implicated his colleague Jack Gallagher as a road agent. He claimed to be, quote, as innocent as the babe unborn. Later, he admitted to killing men in Missouri and California. When the vigilantes sentenced Helm to death, he took it, took it calmly and ended, ended his sordid life with a little bit of panache. While watching Gallagher slowly strangle to death, Helms and his soon-to-be ex-associate, well, Helms said to his soon-to-be ex-associate, quote, kick away, old fellow, I'll be in help with you in a few minutes. His last words were, every man for his principles, hurrah for Jeff Davis, let her rip. I think I would probably want to go that way, too. He is one of the five road agents buried on Virginia City's Boot Hill. Oh, there's the Hangman's Building in Virginia City. Thank you, Ellen. And then this photo is the uh, the marker, the second one from the uh, from the uh, right. You've all you've all been up there, right? Okay. I always get a little nervous. Five minutes. I always get a little bit nervous when I go up there and I badmouth Boonhelm standing next to his headboard <laughs> that a hand is going to come out <laughs> of the ground and grab me and drag me back down. But that hasn't happened so far. In fact, I would assume that Helm would probably enjoy what he said about him. Um, Boonhelm did indeed leave a trail of malevolence across the American West. He was a robber, a thief, and a murderer for sure. Also, for the purposes of this session, he was a pompous cannibal. According to many sources, Barton and McPherson may not have been his only uh, victims that he killed and ate. There might have been many others. In a sense, he's a 19th century version of the fictional Hannibal Lecter, but without the sophistication and taste for fine wines. I'm sure there is a moral to this somewhere. One man, Johnston, probably never partook of, of the last taboo, but he certainly wanted people to think he did. He pretty much based his career on Montana on an event that didn't happen. And one thing that still bothers me quite a bit is when you watch um, documentaries on the History Channel, I put history in quotes too, by the way, that they always repeat the stuff that came out of the Crow Killer book. They never really talked about John Johnston as he really was. There is no evidence that he ever bragged about the so-called after-the-battle snack, but he never denied it either. One look at him and his reputation was enough to cause many to back down for sure. I'm sure he would be an interesting guy to talk to, but he's somebody you probably wouldn't want around when he was hungry. Boonhelm, on the other hand, was much worse than his contemporaries made him out to be. The quintessential frontier desperado he possessed absolutely no redeeming qualities whatsoever, and we should thank the vigilantes for removing him from the gene pool. Although he ate human flesh to survive, he, unlike members of the Donner Party and Emmeline Fuller, who were ashamed of eating their friends and family, Helm seemed to relish his taste in meat. 
in closing, I'm not sure how, didn't, wasn't real sure how to handle this presentation. Cannibalism really isn't funny, right? But you got to make bad puns, and you got to make distasteful jokes, and, uh, and add a little levity to it, especially with these two individuals. Um, I hope you forgive me. <laughs> but especially if I was a little bit too flippant about it. But again, cannibalism is a serious subject. Neither Johnston nor Helm were laughing matters, and I'd hate to meet both of them in a dark alley or have the hand coming out of the ground at, at Boot Hill. So with that, I think I'm out of time, and bon appetit. <laughs>